Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, all you wonders of the modern world, and welcome to another Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. By selecting this podcast, you've served yourself up another helping of brain food to get you through another seven days and hopefully get you to navigate the twists and turns of the modern era. And here with the roadmap for the future, our master navigator extraordinaire, it's Matthew Dickerson. Um, hey, Matt, how are you going? Yeah, good things, James. It's always exciting. I get excited, you know, about these sessions. It's yeah. just so much technology to talk about and so many things and always an interesting introduction by yourself. So it's a, <laughs> it's always a bit something that I look forward to each week, but just to see what's happened each week. There's so many things that change each week and so many new things I never, ever run out of topics to talk about. It's always a challenge to pare it down to just maybe 40, 50 minutes worth of stuff. Otherwise, yeah, it'd be right. hours. Yeah, there is. And there's some awesome stuff. And yeah, there's a, a fair diversity of, of stories that you've got there. You know, EVs are a hot topic, of course. <laughs> Sometimes we talk about scams. But it's all those other little knickknacks that are uh, coming into, a, you know, what are set to come into our daily and day-to-day lives. Yeah. Um, so interesting. Yeah, it is absolutely right. Even I look through now when my kids were going to uni over the last few years, looking through the various universities the admissions guides, and I go, wow, there's some really cool courses now. What about that one there? And there's so many things that are almost niche things you can explore now, whether it yeah. be university, whether it be occupations. There are people out there, thousands of people out there, millions of people out there across the world who are exploring so many different areas of technology, and we get to talk about little things after they've done years and years of research. Yeah. So it's almost a bit belittling to those people for all the work they've done that we just give it five or ten minutes. Well, I also love the the nostalgic stories, too, <laughs> the ones where we look back and you know, get a chance to just take a sneak peek at what life was like, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, yeah. 40 years ago, <laughs> um, and just uh, and reflect on that. In fact, I was thinking about you know doing university assignments on an old – 386, and how impressed I was. You know, you could put this CD-ROM in a drive and you could just have an encyclopedia worth of stuff. Just like at the press of a button. It was amazing. (laughs) Um, And I don't remember having internet back then in the mid-'90s, but, um, yeah, it was just amazing to have this. Because I used to, I remember in high school, using an electronic typewriter with automatic (laughs) liftoff. You could erase your mistakes by whiting over stuff. Um, (laughs) And then they had those typewriters that actually had about 10 characters ahead of what it actually put on the page. So it had the little LCD readout. And so you can make a mistake without the whiteout being required because you could backspace up to 10 characters and then it would produce those (laughs) on the bit of paper. But computers, when I was at uni, the college I was at, at Sydney Uni, had two computers in the computer room, so trying to get some time on those yeah. two computers to do your assignments. <laughs> I still I still remember one of the science projects I did in, in studying you know, science was a handwritten assignment. Oh, like, I did handwritten assignments. Yeah, I remember right. That, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. And so getting that computer time was almost impossible sometimes. Yeah. But then there was a kid when I was in second year, there was a kid who came, a fresher, who had his own computer, believe it or not. Can you, <laughs> can you imagine there that? I was going, that kid, that guy's got a, like his own computer in his room. He was the richest person in the <laughs> entire world as far as I'm concerned. I want to be friends with him just so I could use his computer. So that was crazy. So we he needed had four people to carry up to his room. <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we had three computers at college then, two in the computer room and then one in this kid's room. So yeah. it's a long way away from that now. Do you remember the old dot matrix printers? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you'd, you'd go to print just a simple letter, but you'd have to sit down and wait for a good five to ten minutes. For and it to put your headphones on because they were so noisy. Yeah, it was loud, yeah. <laughs> ah, the days, the days. Indeed. All right. 
right, well, let's dive into our first story for the day. A fool and his money are soon parted, so the adage goes. Well, how much would you be prepared to pay for a 15-year-old iPhone? Matt, you're an iPhone fan. A phone 15 years old? Did it have the old rotary dial on it or something? Or <laughs> can't even remember that. Well, there we are talking about nostalgia. This was <laughs> the first iPhone that came out. And I just don't get what some people do. I've got I, friends. I guess that makes it big because it was the first one. It does, but yeah. it was in its original box. So oh. this went to auction. Still sealed, still in its original box. I'd almost guess that it wouldn't work because the battery sitting there for 15 years probably had expired. But if you put a new battery in, I'm sure it would work fine. But what was the point of owning it for 15 years yeah. in its original box? I've got some friends, one in particular that's a mad comic collector, but he buys the comics and keeps them in their original yeah. sealed packaging. And I get so frustrated. I go to his Did, place. Did you even I, open the... the no, no, oh. no, you can't. <laughs> James, you cannot do that. So I go to his place <laughs> and I go, oh, I just want to go and read a phantom. No, don't touch you those. What's touch the it. point of having them? I mean, I must admit, he sometimes buys two, keeps one right. in its packaging, tucked away, and the other one that he might read. But I kind of get a bit frustrated. What's the point of that? So this particular gentleman had an original iPhone. For whatever reason, he decided that 15 years was long enough to have it in its original packaging, so it's time to put it on the market. And he got US $39,000, actually just over $39,000 for this original iPhone. Now, he would have paid back in the day, back in 2007 when it was first released, he would have paid about $599 US for it. Take into account inflation, so you're probably up to about $850 is the equivalent dollars he paid for it. So not a bad return on your investment. If that's the case, you should have bought a bunch of them. He would have yeah. got a great return on his investment, but you wouldn't be sure 15 years ago that it would actually be worth that amount of money. So quite incredible. The bidding went pretty quickly. An opening bid of two and a half grand, I'm sure someone went, oh yeah, two and a half grand, I'll pay that for a 15-year-old iPhone. But then it quickly went up to five figures and then wow. ended up $39,000. One of the things I thought was quite interesting is you look at the specs of that original iPhone oh. to the latest iPhone 14 <laughs> that's just come out. So to give you an idea, the iPhone originally came out with 4, 8 or 16 gigs of memory. This particular one had 8 gigs. So it was a middle-of-the-road one back in those days. You compare that to now, if you bought an iPhone 14 Pro, smallest memory is 128, but you can buy a 1 terabyte version of that. So mm. in that 15 years, 8 gigs up to 1 terabyte. The camera, only 1 camera what were they thinking one camera <laughs> no selfie camera what self-respecting iphone user doesn't want a selfie camera so that original one had a two megapixel which doesn't sound too bad actually a two megapixel mm. rear-facing camera but only took photos there was not enough processing power on that phone to actually do videos. videos yeah, yeah. Okay. so two megapixel camera photos only Compare that again to a new one, you have a 48 megapixel main camera on a new iPhone 14. That's one of the three rear-facing cameras and the one forward-facing camera. So four cameras on a modern one, one camera on an old one. And of course, you can do videos. Most people probably do spend their time doing more videos than photos. And you've got 4K video, 60 frames per second, 120 frames per second if you use the native uh, protocol of that. So a fair bit of difference there. Battery-wise, 1,400 milliamp hours versus 3,200 milliamp hours. I couldn't find the length of time you could talk on the original iPhone, but significantly less, I would suggest, than what mm. we can do now. Uh, thickness was quite interesting. The original one, 11.6 millimetres versus 7.9, so a bit of a shaving there. Yeah. But then the screen resolution, 165 pixels per inch 
compared to 460 pixels per inch. And you can see that when you look at the screens, they are much clearer. Yeah. So if you've got an original phone, it doesn't have to be an iPhone, you had any original phone in any reasonable sort of manufacturer, like a Samsung, for example, a big manufacturer, had that original phone, if you just happen to have it sitting in the box still sealed, then take it to an auction house and you'll get a few dollars for it. See what it's worth. Yeah. Um, and no rotary dial on that. Phone. No rotary dial okay. on that one, no. Okay. <laughs> All right. While we're on the subject of old phones, how often do you upgrade yours? And then what happens to that old phone? Well, here's a figure to think about. By the end of this year, 5 billion phones will have been done with and just become e-waste. Matt, some pretty massive implications are here. 5.3 billion mobile phones thrown away this that's year. So the first, <laughs> first... For a planet that's got just under 8 billion people. That's the thing. That was exactly what I thought. I Sorry. Thought, Hold <laughs> on. No, no, that's fine. I thought Because your thought process was the same as mine. 5.3 billion, only 8 billion, or not quite 8 billion people on the planet... What are we doing? And then I started to research a bit further and found that the estimation is that we have about 16 billion mobile phones sitting in on the planet right now as we speak, two for every person. Now, right. I know there are some examples where people have a work phone and a personal phone, for example, but 8 billion includes every one-day-old baby. Surely they don't have two phones yet. Yeah. Maybe one phone would be enough for them. So I've only got one phone, so someone's got at least another phone on my behalf. There's three Maybe phones three someone's phones. got, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that 16 billion includes some of the ones that aren't being used as well. Okay. But that's the estimation at the moment. Sitting there right now, 16 billion phones. I know we've got some in a drawer somewhere. And that's the thing. So this is the real focus at the moment is to try and get some of that waste, that e-waste sitting in drawers and get it back into the recycling stream. Because if you think about those 5.3 billion phones, of those, the estimation is this year that only about 17% of those phones will actually be recycled. People will leave them in their bottom drawer or they'll just throw them out or they'll, I don't know, give them to someone that doesn't actually recycle them or some organisation that claims to recycle that doesn't, but only 17%. The big issue here is if we keep consuming what we have, our resources, at that rate and keep throwing away $5.3 billion every year without trying to get them in some sort of recycling, it doesn't take that many years, maybe a decade or two, before we run out of resources to mm. dig up to make these mobile phones. Shop. So the warning now, and this is a whole... Um, organisation that's really trying to focus on this is really saying start recycling those now. And they've got a target, which is not a ridiculous target. They're saying, sure, 17% this year is pretty bad. Next year, could we just aim to get to 30%? Let's double that. And 30% still doesn't sound like a ridiculous mm. number. Can we get 30% of the phones that we're going to throw out this year back into recycling? Part of the challenge is for the manufacturers is if it's cheaper for a mining operation to give them bulk quantities of whatever particular resource they might need, they probably would say, well, it's cheaper that way, we'll go that way. So we've really got to try and get to the point where we get those phones, take the raw components out of those phones and get them in some sort of format that the manufacturers can use that in an easy format because mm. it comes down to the bottom dollar sometimes. It does, yeah. If they can mine and get it cheaper, then let's go and do that and we'll worry about the problem next decade when we run out of stuff to dig up. Now, when I... When I surrender an old phone, what's the risk of um, data harvesting from that? Like, you, you don't know what's... Yeah, I 
know, got lots of stuff on my old phones that uh, I might not want to share with other people. Yeah. Um, so wh- what protections can you put in? You really need to make sure you wipe it and wipe it in a way that you're comfortable that that data's gone. So it is a, an issue and some people don't know enough about it. They don't know how to wipe it. They don't know what to do there. But if you go to any of your trusted mobile phone retailers who might have in, in Australia mobile musters, the big thing that might have some mobile muster bins, they'll often go through that process for you and basically mm. wipe that phone and make sure it is completely clear. Because you're right, you don't want pictures of your kids or mm. you know pictures of you and me together out there in the big wide world. So you want to make sure that that data is done. One of the things that's a bit of an issue is if you've got a phone that doesn't work anymore, let's say you've got a phone, the battery's died or it got wet and so you get to the point where you can't turn it on well, I can't wipe that now. And so then you might be a little bit more nervous about handing it in because the memory component of that phone is probably still intact. Yeah. Even if it got wet, for example, it might have affected the battery. It might have affected some of the power components, but that memory may well be fully intact. So you hand it in. Mm. Oh, I can't turn it on anymore. I can't wipe it. Someone gets it and then looks out there. So again, that'd be the sort of thing that I'd talk to a phone retailer about and say, look, I don't know what's on this phone, but I really don't want those photos shared, but I can't turn it on. Mm. Can you do something about that? Yeah. yeah, certainly food for thought there. And that's enough about old phones, folks. Let's talk about some brand new shiny phones. Motorola are looking for the next big thing, and they're hoping that the answer lies in rollable phones. What are you thinking, Matt? Looks interesting. But is it enough? Is it enough? So there is a bit of a battle going on at the moment. For the next big thing. Yeah, always the next big thing. We've had phones that seem to get bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where it's great. You can see so much information on your screen, but it doesn't just slip into your yeah, pocket that right. easily anymore. So what and tiny you... phones, they're <clears throat> losable. That's, they are losable. That's right. A good point. Then you get to the stage where... Various companies are saying, well, let's fold the phone. It could fold downwards like a flip phone, could fold outwards like a book. And so they're becoming more popular and they seem to be getting better. Some of the first ones, the screen would lift up pretty easily or you get a big crease mark in it. They're getting better. But again, is that the format that people want? Is that where we're headed? Motorola think maybe you don't necessarily want that. And so they've gone with a rollable phone. Now, my first thought when I thought of a rollable phone was like a newspaper. You just roll the thing up and that's it. That's what I thought as well. It's not quite like that because there's a few components in there that don't like to roll. But they've gotten to the point now where manufacturers are pretty good at rolling a screen. We've seen TVs. We've talked Mm. about them before. There's a box sitting on the bench. You press a button and out rolls this TV. And that's exactly what they're doing with this Motorola rollable. And I've actually watched the videos of it. So you look at the phone, it's a four-inch phone. It sits there and you go, well, that's a bit small for a modern phone. Hit a button on the side and the, the top of it just slowly lifts up and from the bottom it's unrolling its screen itself mm. and you end up with a six-and-a-half-inch screen. So that's not bad. Now, is this the format that people want to go forward with? I'm not sure, but it's different. And Motorola, which would used to be a huge name in mobile yeah. phones, haven't had such a name recently, so they're trying to do something to get their name back in front of people's faces. They might have this as a bit of a concept phone. They might tease it out there, but then it just gets people talking about Motorola, just like you and I are right now. <laughs> and then they have some back other... Back in the game. <laughs> some other normal phones they might bring back in. Yeah, right. Uh, but anyway, have a look at it. It's quite interesting. 
I'm not convinced. It just doesn't feel robust enough to me when you hit a little button on the side and it just rolls up. But there is no doubt about it that I want a bigger phone to look at, but I want a smaller phone to carry. When mm. I get on my bike and get for a ride, I don't want a big phone to carry with me. But when my old eyes want to look at a phone, I definitely want it bigger. So give me something that does both of those perfectly and is robust, then I'm there. The next Motorola customer right there, folks. <laughs> Okay, that's enough with the phone talk. Regular listeners may remember a story that we delivered a while back about Netflix with a cheaper option, but the trade-off was ad breaks. Sort of like free-to-air TV, except you have to pay for it. Well, get your tickets, folks. Netflix's new tier is set to launch on November the 4th. Matt, how long do you think it'll be before the board at Netflix realise that people prefer their free-to-air TV (laughs) free? (laughs) It's a confusing one. And I must admit, the same thing happened with pay TV. When pay TV first came out, I went, oh, I'd pay not to have ads. Yeah, I like that idea. And then pay TV has ads. I don't understand. I seem to have been gypped somehow. Mm. Free to air, my dad always used to say to me, free to air, the ads pay for the TV shows. So son, sit there and be okay with the ads because I used to complain about the ads a bit when I was a kid apparently. So Ah. be okay with the ads because they're paying for the content. But hold on, if I'm paying for the content, I don't want those ads on, thanks very much. So pay TV seems to have got away with it. You pay for it and you get the ads. For the streaming services out there, they seem to have had a model that said, you pick whatever you want, you choose how and when you want to watch that show, choose to watch multiple in the same series, whatever you want, that's all fantastic. No longer do you have to say, oh no, it's 7.30pm on a Wednesday night, MacGyver's on, stop everything. I forgot to set the VCR. (laughs) That's right, I forgot to get the recorder going. So that sounds fantastic, but Netflix have been a bit worried. They've lost 1.13 million users over the past six months. Now, I'd be worried if I lost 1.13 million listeners to our podcast, but I don't have 220.67 million subscribers mm. on our podcast. And that's how many subscribers Netflix have got. Uh, have got. So if you've got that many subscribers and you lose 1 million, well, that's about half a percent, give or take. So it doesn't sound like slash your wrist sort of territory, but the Netflix board have said, no, no, we've got to do something about it. We're being beaten out by other streaming services. Now, I don't sit on the Netflix board, but if I did... I'd probably say it's a market that's increasing competition. There seems to be a new niche subscriber or subscription service coming out seemingly every week, every couple of weeks. So you're probably going to lose some subscribers. If you're first to market and you've built up pretty good market share, which Netflix did, they're probably going to lose out. But they are stressing a little bit. I'd just say to the board, just calm down. It's Mm. okay. We can lose a few subscribers. But they're concerned and they've introduced this new tier. They believe it's all about pricing. I don't think it is, but they believe it's all about pricing. They think if they can offer a cheaper Netflix version, then, okay, we won't lose so many subscribers. But how do you do that and not hit the bottom line? Well, you do that by selling ads. So you're going to see, if you want to pay only $6.99 for the Netflix ad, ad version tier, then you're going to see about four minutes, or no more than four minutes of ads per hour. And then the first thing I thought of was, huh, this is streaming. If you get to a boring part of a show, you just skip forward, don't you? <laughs> but they're a little bit cleverer than that. They've obviously thought that everyone else will think of that as well. So like you see with some of the free-to-air services that do have some streaming services, when you get to ads, you can't just skip past them. So mm. those ads will be locked in as part of that program and you'll have to watch the entire ad. So would you pay less to get ads in there? For the mm. sake of how much Netflix is, 
personally, I'd go, my time's worth more than the extra $10, whatever it might be, for those ads. But I don't know. What do you I've reckon? I've also noticed on streaming services is that it seems like they will just fill a space with the same ad. So ads run back to back the same ad. <laughs> Yes. And we've had it run three times or so, <laughs> the same ad. If you didn't get it the first time, you've got it the second time. Oh, here's a third time, <laughs> one after the other. And it becomes just ridiculous. It does. So it's it's gone beyond frustrating now. It's now, uh, yeah, something else. Yeah, and I think the reason they do that is because they just don't have enough advertisers Yeah, I yet. think so, yeah. So a normal free-to-air might have, right, in the next hour or the next night of programming, we've got 50 ads to put in our rotation and make sure you get the rotation right. But for some of the streaming services, as they go, right, we've got oh one ad to put in our rotation. Yeah. How's that look? Well, we just keep running it over and over and over. <laughs> and and you've got, you know, only so many advertisers out there and yeah. you've got so many streaming services Correct. and so many ad breaks. Yep. So, yeah, the, the, the difficulty in getting advertisers to actually be able to send you something that they want to put on. Yeah. So my big prediction is that Netflix will find this doesn't do anything for their subscriber numbers in terms of stopping mm. the small bleed they're having at the moment. I don't know whether they'll keep it on in a year's time, but I don't think it will stop the slow bleed of subscribers. I don't think it's about pricing because you're not talking about a lot of money here. Could be about content. Could be about content. You have the killer content, then people will want your people service. Will be on there. I'll pay whatever for it. Here's a story for people who are still unsure if they're living in the future or not. In an era where we live in the face of an energy crisis, you'll soon be able to buy a coat made of solar harvesting fabric. Matt, is there any surface left on the earth where you can't stick a solar cell? Uh, they're getting better, aren't they? I reckon we, down a mine shaft, maybe. <laughs> not so useful. but get some mirrors, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but it is getting quite exciting about how good we're getting about harvesting free energy. And free is probably a little bit loosely used there, but energy yeah, from the so sun. So much sunlight. Yeah. So... We've got solar panels that are getting better and better, getting more efficiency. We've seen examples at your school where you've rolled out solar panels, mm. so they're getting thinner and thinner. Well, I heard you know, in Scandinavia, are they still making roads out of solar panels? So, yeah, there are, there are roads being made in different parts of the world out of solar panels. So there's all these different ways because we are getting a lot of sunlight. In fact, at the equator at midday, you're getting about one kilowatt per square metre mm. of solar energy hitting the earth. Now, we're not very good at turning 100% of that into yeah. electricity, but we're getting better and better. But this concept is fascinating. Now, the first thing I thought of with this one, and we've talked about it before, there are headphones on the market that have got a small solar panel across the band that goes across the top of your head to harvest a bit of power. There's also a new cycle computer that's just come out that's got solar panels built into the screen. You can't see them, not like the old calculators. Yeah. You had the little array across the top. Yeah. You can't see these. They're built into the screen, and they just use those solar panels to extend the battery life on your cycle computer. But this concept here of taking a jacket or a backpack or any bit of clothing, putting it on, and it's got solar panels built into it as part of the fabric to then generate some electricity. And it probably lends itself to what's happening in society in general. We are using electronic products so much more. Our phones, our watches, there's so many things that we carry with us, we have on us, we have around us, that we need 
powerful and it's that constant juggle about plugging them all in. I know when I travel, I take an array of charging devices <laughs> with me that I seem to get picked up at security more often than not because there's so many things in my backpack. They go, oh, we just want to check all this out so that you get out and you pull it all out because I've got all these things. I've got to charge. When I turn up somewhere, I do laugh at myself thinking, how many different devices do I have to charge up here? <laughs> so you've got all those things to charge up. But this concept where you've got these little tiny solar panels. Each one is about five millimetres by one and a half millimetres. So they're yeah, fairly small. Yeah, right. They're actually woven into the fabric to the point where you can wash this, you can throw it in the washing machine, it can be crumpled up, screwed around, and then you have some leads that come out. Logically, you'd probably have them in your pocket. So you can just plug in a phone in your pocket, you walk around, you're charging up That's that device. Crazy. Now, it's not going to be incredibly fast charging. Yeah. You're not going to say, I'll just plug it into my pocket and half an hour later it'll be fully charged. It will be a slow charge. And for things like this, normally what I look at is, it's not so much that it recharges it, it probably slows down the yeah. discharge. Yeah, yeah. So instead of getting all day with my mobile phone, I might be able to get three or four days. If I want to go hiking in the mountains, then I don't have to worry about any other charger because this gives me enough extra charge that it just slows down the charge enough that I can get away with it. But it does seem fascinating, doesn't it? Having material, having yeah. a textile that's got solar panels built into it. So, yeah, sounds pretty cool. So for the outdoorsy types, I can see tents being made out of this, uh, you know, and any other sort of outdoor gear. Yeah. Um, yeah, why wouldn't you? Anything at all. And I thought of a hat, but I'm just not convinced the surface area in a hat would be quite enough to give you any sort of reasonable power. Mm. And then you look like an FBI agent with a lead coming down from your hat down into <laughs> somewhere else and you're down the back of your neck or something. So, you know, I'm not sure about the hat. But, yeah, anything that's got a reasonable surface area, the tent's a great example. Mm. Yeah. You just imagine you're pitching your tent out there in the bush. Why are you facing it that way? I've just got to get the flat angle of the tent at the right angle to hit the sun in the morning and get as much charge as I possibly can. Not something you normally think about when you're pitching your tent. Energy just hammered home another nail in the coffin of coal and gas with an aesthetically pleasing and environmentally friendly wind turbine that churns out power like nobody's business. A new record has been set for wind turbine power, Matt. A new record, but I want to go back a little bit. This is the current latest technology in terms of windmills or wind turbines, but let's go back through yeah, can history. We just classify a windmill is not generating electricity, is it? A windmill is grinding flour in Holland, in the <laughs> Netherlands. Well, a windmill, you can still talk about things like pumping water as well. Oh, okay, yeah, look, yeah. I'm, I'm probably being a bit loose there using the term windmill. I, just when I hear windmill, I think Donald Trump misunderstanding again. <laughs> yeah, probably right. Okay, I'll take it back. I'm sorry. <laughs> so we're talking about the latest in wind turbines. Wind turbines, thank you very much. That's right. But let's go back in windmills. About... Two millennia, we've been using windmills or wind to power things like grinding grain, mm. like pumping water. So we've been pretty good at saying, hold on, there's a bit of wind there. Can I do something with that? And yes, we have been able to do something with it. Then jump forward to 1887. That was the very first wind turbine that was used to produce electricity. So yeah, there's a right. fair bit of history there. And then jump forward. 1887, that's a lot earlier than I would have thought. I would have put yeah. it somewhere in the mid-1900s. Well, yeah. keep in mind that around that time, obviously there was a lot of work being done by people like Edison, by Tesla, yeah. in trying to 
capture the electricity market and the ACDC right. wars, all those things. But keep in mind that Niagara Falls had some hydropower being yeah. generated there. So there was an understanding of spinning something, Just lenses law. Anything to spin. That's right. So yeah. wind turbine spinning, that sounds pretty cool. So people back in 1887 would set up a wind turbine at a house. So how do you get power to that house? Because they didn't really have a transmission grid. Oh, well, you just stick a wind turbine in there. So people were selling them per household. You'd go and put yeah, your own right. wind turbine in. So it seems like we're going back to the future a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> but 1980 was the first wind farm. So there were 20 turbines installed in 1980 in the first wind farm across the world. So that's somewhere that was specific about generating power for the grid. And obviously mm. since 1980, we've come a long way. But when you look at this particular record, then in one day, in 24 hours, this latest wind turbine produced 359 megawatt hours. Yeah. This is one turbine. Now, it's no little basic turbine. It's a turbine that has blades that are 108 metres in length. Oh, the, wow. The, the radius or the diameter, sorry, of the turbine's is 222 metres, so it's a fair <laughs> old area. It's an offshore turbine. Yeah, Most okay. of the big ones, yeah. yeah, most of the big ones are offshore. But when you start to break down what you can do with a turbine that produces 359 megawatt hours, it's enough power for 18,000 homes or wow. average driving 60,000 electric vehicles. So let's put it in perspective. You go to a reasonable-sized regional city, you might have a population of, say, 60,000. They might have maybe three people per home, so they might have maybe 20,000 homes in that particular area. Very rough numbers there. But when you think about that, think about a reasonable-sized regional city, one turbine. One turbine. One turbine enough to power that entire, all the homes. I'm talking about industry you could put there. put two in and have a little bit of spare stuff. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> put two in in different parts of the city and you'd maybe cover when wind doesn't blow quite so hard. But that's where we're headed. We seem to be headed for larger and larger. And it makes sense. When I'm putting a wind turbine offshore, I've got to get some power to it. I've got to get some cabling to it. There's a certain amount of work to get that cabling to it. I've got to have some way of securing that wind turbine out in the middle of the ocean. If I only have to do that 10 times instead of 15 times, mm. then obviously that makes the whole process more efficient. So they are making them bigger and bigger because all of that underground or underwater infrastructure you put in, if you can do that less, mm. that seems like a good thing. So this particular one, I think we'll see... More and more, will they break this record soon? Probably, but we'll see more and more of this type of thing. But the other thing we're seeing a lot of as well, in conjunction with turbines that are getting this large, is the triple threat, the combination of all three. You'll see areas coming up soon, and they're already being built now, that'll have wind turbines, they'll have some solar panels, and they'll have a battery. So the idea is, from those three, you've got wind blowing most of the time, you've got sun shining during the day, you've got a battery being charged up when it's being produced or when power's being produced, but also then battery for the times that wind and solar aren't being produced. So you've basically got a whole wind solar generation area, a whole renewable area that's generating power consistently, you can say, all the time because 
amongst those three, you're able to put power out on the grid consistently. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Now, recyclable as well, is that right? So the blades are now being recycled. So the blades in this particular one, and we've talked a little bit before about how you might try and recycle. There are different things that are being done. We talked about a resin that you could use for mm. gummy bears afterwards. This particular one is made out of a single gigantic piece of recyclable resin. So you put this 108-metre blade up, you let it spin away there for 25, 30 years, maybe longer, and then finally you say, only 359 megawatt hours in a day, we've got a much bigger one now. Let's go and mm. upgrade that new to the, the new turbine, whatever it might be. Oh, no, what are we going to do with this old blade? So this blade is made so that it can be recycled. And that's one of the arguments against, it's a weak argument in my opinion, but one of the arguments against wind turbines is, oh, no, after the 25 or 30 years, you've got to throw out that bit of fiberglass or bury that bit of fiberglass. So this resin is made in such a way that it can be broken down again and then made into new turbines or whatever else you might want to make out of it. And now we just have to do something about the enormous bird cemetery at the bottom of it as well. Is that right? <laughs> That's the other one, yeah. Uh. Uh, look, and, and we have talked about it before briefly, but I've been down to a wind turbine farm probably six months or so ago, and one of the things they had to do as part of their approval process was actually track. They had university students come out, and every day they would go out and track the number of birds that were on the ground around a certain radius of each wind turbine. And the students had a pretty boring time because they didn't find many birds there. There were some there, but not very right. many. So the bird cemetery eh, might yeah. be a little bit over the top, but, <laughs> but there are certainly some there. But let's face it, if we don't do something, there are going to be a lot more birds die. The bird cemetery is going to be right. much larger because climate change is and going to affect... It just the birds. Yeah, that's right. Powering the aviation industry is still a sticking point. At this stage... For the job that needs to be done, shipping people and cargo all over the planet by air can only be done, really, by fossil fuels. We've talked about some alternatives that are still in their developmental phase in the past episodes, and there are a big bunch of clever brains at work trying to find a viable alternative. And today, we're adding another alternative to the list. Matt, what are the details about this new 100% sustainable aviation fuel? Good old SAF. You'll hear the term SAF. SAF. Yeah, that acronym or initialism of SAF a lot more in the future because sustainable aviation fuel is a bit of the holy grail in the aviation industry. Now, we've talked before. We talked about Alice previously. We've talked before about these short-haul flights. Those flights of about an hour or less, we will see with electric aircraft. They're being flown now. They're being tested now. So that's going to happen without a doubt. But... The flights from Sydney to LA or Sydney to Dubai, those 13-hour type flights, Mm. getting enough batteries in those to get those flights to go that distance is not going to happen in the immediate future. Then there's talk about hydrogen. So there's potential for hydrogen as a fuel source in an aircraft. But again, we're talking about a long way down the track. In the meantime, the aviation industry uses about... 400 billion litres of jet fuel each year. Yeah, that's amazing. That's all coming out of fossil fuels, all coming out of the ground and being turned into jet fuel. Is there something we can do? So there's been some work done on a few different ways, but they just haven't been able to get it right yet. But there have been researchers from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Washington State University, and the Department of Energy's National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Those three have been working together. And they've got to the point where they believe lignin can be 
a concept or a component in sustainable aviation fuel. Lignin from wood. Lignin from plant cell walls, yeah. So mm. lignin from plants. And again, obviously, if it's plants, they can basically renew it. Now, the big problem has been the high oxygen content. Lignin normally has oxygen content around 27 to 34%, which is way too high. You need it down preferably below 1%, half percent, ideally you'd want that oxygen level at. So when they've done some previous research into lignin oils, it just hasn't been good enough. They've almost given up. Okay, that doesn't work, we'll move on to something else. But this latest research has shown that using lignin with some new processes, they can get it down already to about 1% and they think they can get it down further. So it may well be that in the very near future, we'll have a mixture of normal jet fuel and some components that come out of lignin to get to the point eventually where we'll be able to replace that jet fuel entirely with plant-based fuel. Now, I imagine it's going to be fairly expensive to process this, so that's a bit of an issue there. And there might be other things. Hydrogen might come along and take over at some stage in the near future, for example. Mm. But in the meantime, trying to get some plant-based material in that sustainable aviation fuel is the real challenge, that real holy grail. And... Um presents another alternative like it's he's talked about hydrogen obviously and, and we've talked about other things as well um but um yeah this is another alternative so clever minds are thinking about these things yeah that's and right. we haven't reached the end of our technology road nowhere near it in fact one of the challenges for hydrogen which as they go for a whole range of challenges but one of the challenges is that hydrogen is a small atom mm. hydrogen leaks out of mm. various containers you put it into. So when they've talked about shipping hydrogen, for example, having hydrogen produced with green power at some part of the world, putting it in ships and moving it somewhere else, they're losing a reasonable amount of that hydrogen. So you get to the other end, you go, hold on, we were promised <laughs> X millions of litres and we're only getting 80% of that. So you are actually finding a little bit of leakage there. Now, with an aircraft, you'd say, well, that's okay, a 13-hour flight it'll leak a little bit of that out, but you're burning it up much quicker than you're leaking it. Mm. But you've got to get that hydrogen somewhere. So you've got to produce it somewhere, then get it from A to B, and that's where a bit of the problem is in transporting that. But again, we'll have people who will solve that problem, but the, the normal containers you would have to store a lot of gases, when you put hydrogen in there, they do actually manage to leak out the walls because it's so small. There are so many things that we take for granted, and one of the gifts of the modern world is that the list of things that are so convenient and efficient grows daily, like mobility and the simple act of getting about with a degree of speed and agility. As I age, I learn the value of a well-made pair of shoes, let me tell you that. But for this next story, I'm reminded of the young Forrest Gump and that pair of corrective calipers he wore to help him walk. Fast forward to 2022 and zoom in on the exoskeleton boots that are designed to make day-to-day -day walking more efficient. Matt, wearable robotics are about to become a big thing, right? Now, you do think of movies, don't you? When you see exoskeletons, <laughs> you see warriors going into battle. I had to get onto YouTube and have a look at these things too. They're, they're pretty crazy, but anyway. They yeah. are, but you do see movies like that where they put in this exoskeleton and suddenly they've got the strength of 10 men and yeah. they can do wonderful things. We're not quite talking about that yet. But these exoskeleton boots have been used in some format for some time and typically for people that are getting a bit old or they've got some sort of difficulty walking, or even people with some disabilities getting some help there. So we're not talking about you and I putting them on and beating Usain Bolt. We're talking about people who are struggling with their normal daily walking. And you do see people who do that, and it's such a basic thing that we take for granted, isn't mm. it? We expect to be able to get up and walk to the front door and say hello to someone, or walk down to a coffee shop. And people that can't do that, it 
suffers or their quality of life suffers incredibly. So these boots, you can get these boots that you put on. They basically help you. And the main thing they do when they help is they actually put literally a spring in your step. When you walk and you push forward with your ankle and your calf muscle is contracting and so you're kind of getting that little bit of push off, in particular when you run, but even when you walk, you get that little bit of push off. That's where these exoskeleton boots help dramatically. In the past, and this is where it gets exciting, in the past, if you wanted to get some of these on, you would have to go into a laboratory, be fitted up with these for five consecutive days. You would have to be set up and then walk on a treadmill for two hours in one go. And for people who might be struggling to walk, that's a fairly big ask for them. And then they would be adjusted and modified and manipulated to suit your individual gait. And then you can go and put them on, but then come back next month because you might have changed as you've been wearing them. So we need to adjust them so they have this continual adjustment process. But the latest exoskeleton boots do all of that themselves. So first of all, they take All all this data, all this research they've got, and they say, we know we've got about 3,600 data points already to get a pretty good idea on a starting point. But then they've got machine learning built into them. So as you start using them on a daily basis, forget walking on a treadmill for two hours and then having them manipulated and modified. As you walk and as you use them, they're constantly adjusting how they change your gait and how much they assist you to the point where they're always being modified to suit you individually. As you change, you might get a bit of extra strength back, you might lose some strength, you might have things that go up or down in terms of your mobility, these will continually adjust. What they talk about is that the energy savings that you get out of wearing this sort of exoskeleton boot is the equivalent of removing a 9.2 kilogram backpack. So think about how much of a pain it is if you put a backpack on of 9.2 kilograms and it's a bit harder and you get a bit tired and going upstairs in particular really Mm -hmm. hard work, take that off, oh, I feel a bit lighter and a bit better now. That's the difference it would make for someone by putting on these exoskeleton boots in their current format. But I guarantee they're getting a little bit better, a little bit stronger, fine-tuning them a little bit more all the time. All we need now is like the Iron Man energy source that's, that's still the problem because you've still got to have yeah, power to run these things so you still got to have some form of rechargeable battery on there somewhere but if we could just find that energy source like Iron Man you just put something on and it just powers you forever surely you could get a solar powered coat or something <laughs> yeah that's get. right that sounds good actually <laughs> funny there's a story about that so how good is your internet speed are you happy enough If you ask my son while he's playing whatever first-person shooter he's on at the time, he'd say, Oh my God, the lag on this computer is terrible! The tech world mantra is more and more and faster and faster, and Google is coming to the rescue with their launch of 5 gig and, get this, 8 gig internet plans for early 2024. Matt, I just had a thought. Do you reckon there's even one person of the almost 8 billion on the planet today who still has dial-up? Is, that <laughs> I, even, is it even possible? I'm sure. I'm sure there are some places across the world we get a little bit spoiled. Imagine if you showed up somewhere and said, "Oh, I just need to check something on the internet," and they said, "Oh, hang on a second. and they pressed the button, and you heard the bang, 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 <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> "I wasn't sure about the bang, bang, bang," but the next part was pretty good, actually, pretty accurate. I'm impressed. <laughs> and I can remember over the years some of the things that I've heard. I, I've never liked to hear the word. Never Mm. in technology. 
And there have been times I've talked to people, and I can remember back when we had 33.6 kilobits per second modems, and I remember talking to a gentleman there, and it was a technology person from a technology company, and he said, I oh, know, that's as fast as you'll ever get out of copper, which was his first statement, and why would you need any faster than 33.6? <laughs> and then they came out with modems, the same copper phone lines and modems that could get it up over 50 kilobits per second. And then it was like, well, you said that you'd never get above that with copper. And of course, then ADSL came along. Yeah. We got up to 20 megabits per second. So it's obviously been this continual improvement, which happens. But then when we go to good old MBN and we had people, some oh, geniuses father. like Tony Abbott, who said, no family will ever need more than 25 megabits per second. <laughs> Why could you possibly need more of that to watch a movie on? There's a forethought. <laughs> that's right. And then, of course, you're right, fiber to the premises. 100 megabits per second, we went, wow, that's pretty cool. And sometimes it might have been 100 down and then different speeds up and then you had 100 meg symmetrical. And then, dare we talk about 200 meg. And and now, gigabit speeds yeah. in Australia, well, that's all rubbish now <laughs> compared to what you can do in America. Google Fiber, and Google Fiber's had a bit of a check at history. There have been times when Google seems to have been really focused on delivering fiber connections and really want to play in that space. And then there have been times where Google said, you know what, that's not our job. We're a search engine. We want to do other things. So let's forget about it. But mm. now they've obviously decided to come back in. And in some locations in America, as you said, in early 2023, you'll be able to get five gig speeds, eight gig speeds. Yeah, wow. And some of these, again, different connections, different options there. But Eight gig symmetrical speeds. Imagine that for your son playing games. Eight gig symmetrical sounds unbelievable. Five gig symmetrical sounds unbelievable. And not that expensive. A five gig tier, and this is download, not symmetrical, but five gig tier, $125 US per month. It doesn't wow. sound ridiculous, does it? No. $150 for eight gig tier. So it's just, yeah, anyway. We're so, going to be teleporting people very shortly. <laughs> Surely at eight gigs per second. That's right. <laughs> so, and again, those will be the prices that will be for that sort of download speed and then a slower upload speed. Symmetrical will be dearer. But it does just seem fantastic where we're going with this. Now, the, the real challenge is for the data centers. Because if I'm sitting there on my miserable little 1 meg, 10 meg, 20 meg connection speed and I'm downloading something from a data center, then... I've got a big pipe coming out of that data center, which means that my little 20 meg, I can probably get full speed out of my 20 meg. But if I start having a connection into my business or home that's five gigabits per second, coming out of the data center, think about how big a pipe you need coming out of there yeah. when you start to get multiple people yeah. at five gig or eight gig speeds. So that's the real challenge. Often when I've done some testing with some of these yeah, higher speeds, deliver. even with gigabit speeds, you don't get the full advantage of that gigabit speed because you just can't get the data coming out of somewhere else at that correct speed. Mm. So that's the real challenge now for those different companies out there hosting all their data to be able to host it there. But I did, I do remember when I hooked up a, it was a, a 250 meg symmetrical connection I hooked up at one of my businesses there at one stage. And when I did that, I'm just trying to remember what the, the connection I had before that. It might have been a 20 meg upload speed and then I went to a 250 meg upload speed. And I went to upload one of my YouTube videos. We do YouTube videos with various tech talk things. And I remember uploading one of those. And it didn't take that long when it was a 20 meg upload speed. But I'd click and I'd wait. You'd see it tick away and it'd upload. And it was all done in a relatively short space of time. And the first time I used a 250 meg upload speed, I clicked on it. And I actually thought, oh, oh, I thought I clicked on that. And then I realized that I had clicked on it. But it uploaded it so quickly, 
I didn't actually notice the upload occurring. So <laughs> when you get to that point, when your speeds are so fast that you don't actually notice things happening there, the next it thing just is happens. It will have uploaded before you click on anything. That's right. Before you even think I thought about, about it. it. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. It's quite nice. And people say, well, why do I need that sort of speed? But when you get it, you just start to become accustomed to that. So then you start then to think if, about... if it goes, if you go somewhere where they don't oh, have that speed, it's like, no. oh, what are we waiting That's for? Right. I, I, I'm not going to visit you, I'm sorry, because you don't have a good enough internet connection. But when you get there, then you start to think about other things you can do. So online backups, people want to do online backups, get it off their physical premises, which is logical, sensible. But oh, I've got lots of photos of my backup or lots of video files. Oh, it takes too long to do that online backup, so I'll just have to do some sort of physical backup on my site but when you start to get these sort of speeds imagine a symmetrical eight gigabits per second that's pretty impressive so you could do your online backup find a provider that'll have those stored out in the cloud somewhere and that backup will can just be forget about once a day it can just be constantly happening for example because you've got such great speed so you start to get all these other things you can do once you get access to those speeds you don't always know what you're going to do with it and then when you get it you go wow look at this now i can download the full bond collection of movies in a millisecond just for that next plane flight that'll go for two hours (laughs) (laughs) when you can't make up your mind of it which bond movie you're going to watch sounds reasonable yeah yeah fair enough okay people time to pop the cheese and crackers into the tupperware and fold up the blanket because this techno picnic is done thanks for another cracking tech talk matt no ants coming no ants just yet but they'll be here shortly I don't know about you, but I'm off to see what's on Netflix that's still worth paying with uh, for laced with ads. Thanks again for tuning in again, <laughs> tuning in again today. Well, I'll put my teeth back in. You've been fabulous sitting there listening without interrupting. But just so we know that you haven't gone anywhere, punch a like button or drop a nice comment in the provider, or, um, or just give us five stars and call it a community service. It's been a pleasure bringing you Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. I'm James Eddy, and we look forward to catching you again in another week's time. 